You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every four years, there's one of the most suspenseful moments that you get in American politics. Each party gets to pick a vice presidential nominee. And since 1940, that choice has really been important because the role of the vice president in government has increased in the wake of FDR's death. Given that, I think it's a great time to look at some of the vice presidential selections across American history and to give my top 10 of the best and the worst and to talk a bit about VP picks in general. First, though, it's so common to just hear the discussion be one-sided about how a vice presidential pick is going to help a ticket, about how they're going to enhance, you know, two people are better than one, right? Professional politicians will look at the conventions and see what kind of bounce that candidates will get. But if you look with a historical view, the choice of vice president can also be perilous. There have been a few times in history where the vice presidential choice has either been a nothing slight drag on the ticket, maybe just thinking, oh, someone else could have been so much better, what a waste. And sometimes it's been an absolute disaster. With that, best to start with the top 10 worst vice presidential picks in history. Coming in at number 10, William Hayden English, vice presidential candidate running under Winfield Scott Hancock for the Democratic ticket in 1880. And William Hayden English did have a decorated congressional career serving from the state of Indiana in Congress. He had both supported the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Now, this was the act permitting slavery in U.S. territories if, if the people of that territory voted for it. But he also had opposed the Lecompton Constitution in Kansas. So in other words, once Kansas-Nebraska was passed and a lot of people north were angry about it, English holds on to his seat and then he plays another role. When the Lecompton Constitution comes from Kansas, so Kansas says, we voted and we want to be a slave state, sends it to Congress, President Buchanan supports it. It's pretty obvious the people of Kansas did not fully vote on this Constitution. And a lot of people know this. William Hayden English also opposes the Lecompton Constitution, so he's seen as somebody on both sides of this issue as a compromiser. He supported the Kansas-Nebraska Act, but he wants a real vote of the territory, not a fake one. Now, as Union General Winfield Scott Hancock is running on the Democratic ticket in 1880, and he's going to make it a real close election, by the way, because this is an interesting thing. You know, most of the Union Army are associated with the Republicans, the Grand Army or the Republican alike. They're running a significant general, Winfield Scott Hancock, on the Democratic Party ticket. They're looking to win Indiana, and they look at William Hayden English. Now, there is a problem. While English has had a decorated career... It's 1880, and the last time he held office was 1861. 
It's been 20 years since he's been in elected office. He's been a little active in Indiana politics. His son is in the state legislature, but they're not running William Hayden English's son. They're running him. He wrote a few letters to the editor of various newspapers around the country, got some attention, got some buzz in 1879, and that elevated his name. And plus, there was that prize of Indiana. Hancock English did not win the election, and they lost the state of Indiana as well. Kind of a lesson to parties, maybe pick somebody a little closer to serving at the time of the election. Number nine, Henry Cabot Lodge. The senator from Massachusetts was chosen by Richard Nixon when he ran against John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson in 1960. Here's my problem with this choice, which didn't work out very well for Nixon. It was almost entirely chosen to infuriate the Kennedys and perhaps with a head fake towards winning the state of Massachusetts. See, Henry Cabot Lodge had been Kennedy's opponent in the 1952 election. Now, there was Kennedy was going to win Massachusetts in 1960. It should have been one of those states that you take and you put off the map and concentrate on other places you could win. Perhaps the South. Perhaps look at Texas, where the Democrats are choosing a nominee from. But instead, it seemed like he wanted to stick it to the Kennedys, pick Henry Cabot Lodge, well-respected politician, actually, and someone who's going to be serving in the Kennedy administration as ambassador to Vietnam after this election, but a horrible choice in terms of the politics. So number nine, Henry Cabot Lodge. Number eight, George Pendleton, the Democratic candidate in 1864, running for vice president under George B. McClellan. Now, the Democrats in 1864 picked a union general. We talked about this earlier in the 1880 election, that for Democrats to pick someone from the Civil War who had served in the military is a, was a positive because they weren't seen as the party supporting that war. So you have George B. McClellan running for president. No one can question his credentials. No one will question that he can prosecute the war. I mean, there was some question about his effectiveness on the battlefield, of course, but not about his sincerity or about whether he was a true war Democrat. Picking McClellan the Democrats were formidable in that year, and absent the victory in the Battle of Atlanta, it's very possible it could win that election. There's something else that stung that ticket a little bit, and that's that they nominate George Pendleton from Ohio for the vice presidential slot. Pendleton was clearly a copperhead. He had refused to vote for a simple resolution in Congress supporting the Union War effort. Now, what's the problem with this? Everyone's free to have their opinion, right? Well, you know, it's 1864. We're in the middle of the Civil War, and there's going to be a huge factor here that's going to affect some of the key states, and that's the soldier vote. So soldiers, though many of them respected McClellan. Some did, some didn't, but overall there was respect. Pendleton certainly did not help the soldier vote, which went overwhelmingly for Lincoln in 1864. So we put George Pendleton at number eight. By the way, later in life, Pendleton did have a good... Uh, career, at least uh, looking from a modern perspective, in that the Pendleton Act is still is a uh, civil service act that's still in effect. Now, seven, Richard Mentor Johnson. And here's where I have to say that just because I'm putting people on a worst vice presidential candidate list doesn't mean I don't have respect for some of these historical figures or some of the things that they did, because you did, there are some parts to Johnson that are admirable. But mostly... Richard Mender Johnson was put on the ticket in 1836 to be kind of a Jackson-like figure. 
because Jackson's vice president, Martin Van Buren, the political magician from New York, was going to win the presidential nomination that year, and he was had Jackson's support to run for president. But Richard Mentor Johnson, who had been a hero for his fighting uh, Tecumseh, he made the claim that he was the one that killed Tecumseh. This was something that would be both uh, supported and ridiculed, depending on which side of politics you were on. But he kind of represented a Jackson-like figure. Van Buren thought running with him would help him in the election. He was well-liked by Jackson, and he was a kind of a go-to senator from Kentucky. He had a relationship with one of his slaves, Julia Chin. They were husband and wife without the legal form. He had two children with her. Everywhere he went, he made no effort to hide it. They were his children. He even brought her to Washington. She ran the farm when he was in Washington. In every way, they were husband and wife, and he made no effort to disguise that fact. Uh, but you got to put him in terms of a vice presidential candidate somewhere on this list because he's one in an American history where there was a significantly less electoral votes for vice president than there was for president because his nomination would receive uh, less electors. you got to respect the guys, some of the things that people are saying, some of the southern electors are. You know, the real problem is he doesn't have the dignity to disguise this. He's just out and out with this. As a vice presidential candidate, he didn't help the ticket, and he did not secure his home state of Kentucky for Van Buren. That went to William Henry Harrison in 1836. Number six. Now, I know this will be controversial for two reasons. Where I put her on the list and putting her on the list at all, and that's Sarah Palin. Now, first of all, why just number six? There are probably some listening who would say she's the worst ever. We have to worry about recency in, a, in, in discussing any kind of history or looking at a, a list in American history. But we also can't ignore recency, right? I can't, I can't take people off the list just because they're too soon. It, it becomes kind of a silly exercise at that point. So we want to be careful. Are some arguments for Sarah Palin actually being one of the best candidates ever? I'm going to quote a reporter, uh, Ben Shapiro from Breitbart, writing in uh, 2012. She prevented one of the greatest blowouts of all time in 2008. Another reporter from the Weekly Standard saying that uh, her uneven performance probably shifted some voters to Obama's column, but if Obama picked up votes there, he didn't need them. The economy was in recession, Wall Street was in a meltdown, and the incumbent was unpopular. You can make a case... One of the things we forget is that McCain got a big bounce and was dominating polls in August and then going into September. Obama was in real trouble, and there was a, a lot of excitement about the choice of Palin as vice president. But I think there's two things that makes me put her on this list as number six. One is that and I think it's a lesson that you you've seen you saw in the 2012 choice of of Ryan, let's say, as as a as a more like less surprising choice for VP is that it's kind of a cautionary tale about putting an unknown on the ticket anymore because I think she came to dominate the McCain Palin campaign, you know, and I don't believe you ever want the bottom half of the ticket dominating the message of the first. It should always be about the person running. And secondly, I think she hurt overall in the final vote. How Whatever she might have done in the beginning of the campaign to create some excitement in what 
probably was going to be a losing campaign from the beginning with a very well-liked candidate running on the Democratic side, almost a celebrity at that point. We, we kind of have moved on from all these things and we forget about that 2008 Obama feeling, you know, Obama mania that was going on. She cut right into that. So that's the good side. On the bad side, when it actually comes down to election day and after so many interviews, after the kind of lackluster performance in the debate, and you know, 60% of voters said that she was not qualified to be president in exit polls. 81% of those people went for Obama. She's number six. But at least she helped the ticket at some point. Coming in at number five, William E. Miller. This is an obscure congressman from New York. Barry Goldwater chose in 1964 to be his vice presidential candidate. No one knew who he was. And just as I believe Nixon in 1960 chose Henry Cabot Lodge to kind of stick it to Kennedy, Goldwater used his choice not to win over American voters, but to kind of stick it to the moderates in his party, Rockefeller and Romney and those folks, by picking a vice presidential candidate who was just as conservative as he. In other words, I'm not going to try to go for party unity here. I'm going to pick another conservative. Obviously, Miller couldn't bring in New York. He added very little to the ticket. The only thing that he's really known for is doing some American Express commercials uh, after the fact that uh, kind of traded in on his very obscurity. So William E. Miller coming in on number five. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Number four is Bob Dole. He was picked because Ford had a battle with Reagan at the convention and needed a conservative. Bob Dole was available. He'd been the RNC chair. He was a kind of a popular figure. The first thing he does, though, is he, you know, the, probably the one job that you had in 1976 is there was going to be, for the first time ever, a vice presidential debate. And he goes in that debate. He just looks angry compared to Walter Bondale, looks good, and... Bob Dole just looks angry, the look on his face. He starts talking about Democrats starting all these wars, you know, Democrat wars, and he's, it's obviously a reference to Vietnam and the like. It was not part of Ford's message. In addition, it was a very bad thing in and of itself. And so in a very close campaign, you know, Carter's going to win that by 50.5%, as we've discussed in early episodes here. In a very close campaign, Bob Dole does not hurt help that ticket at all. And in fact, Carter's able to get a lot of mileage out of that Bob Dole choice, and he brings it up in the third debate that he and Ford is going to have. And so if your vice presidential candidate is becoming a weakness, that's pretty far from where you need to be. Bob Dole at number four. Or I should say, Bob Dole at number four. Number three, Henry G. Davis. Alton Parker Running against Theodore Roosevelt in 1904 really didn't have much chance, and so they went to Henry G. Davis. 
a Democrat in West Virginia. Not much else to say about him. He didn't have an elected office. Was and is the oldest person to run for vice president. He was 81 years old. There was only one reason to go with Henry G. Davis, and that was he was loaded. And the Democrats were struggling and needed money. Not only could he not help carry any states, but Henry G. Davis didn't even donate that much. No more than his regular donation reporters found out. Just several hundred dollars. Henry G. Davis at number three. Number two, Dan Quayle. Well, you know, first doesn't seem like a bad choice for George H.W. Bush running in 1988. He had run on the coattails of Reagan in 1980 and beat a huge figure in liberal American politics, Birch Bayh of Indiana. Defeats him, takes a Senate seat, he gets reelected. Senator from Indiana's young, maybe going for a little bit of that kind of Kennedy charm, you know, on, on the Republican side, a, a little bit of a twist. He's also a conservative, and George H.W. Bush, you know, was VP under Reagan and always had a little trouble with pure conservatives, needs to back up that side of the party. So Quayle has multiple benefits. He's so obscure, though, that, and and George H.W. Bush keeps the choice so secret that when they get to New Orleans for the convention, Bush calls Quayle in the hotel, tells him he's the guy and come to the Riverwalk. And they come to the Riverwalk. Quayle doesn't know what he's in the crowd. Security has to pull him out of the crowd because none of the other handlers actually knew who he was. Pretty obscure. Well, before the day is even out, and this is why I put him at number two, before the day is even out, Dan Quayle is on the news and his National Guard service is questioned. It just went downhill. You know, whether because there was such a... Uh, poor launching of his vice presidential candidacy in the beginning. The media was targeting him, or whether it was really about Quayle. Either way, he became a liability to the ticket, even a little bit to the administration. And one of the reasons I'm putting him at number two is some of the discussion that's been out since these events. So in 1988, it looked like a bad choice in the in the election. Um, and, and certainly, even after this election and all the problems and all the mistakes that he's made, then, then you get to the vice presidential debate, and he's defeated in one of the most embarrassing moments in vice presidential debate history. One of the reasons I put him at number two, though, is some of the discussion that has come out since then. James Baker and George W. Bush, all since then in various books, have written that they wanted George H.W. Bush to ask him to get off the ticket. George H.W. Bush didn't want to do it for a number of reasons. Big on loyalty, also afraid that it would show you know, weakness. So he continued to run in 1992. But the fact that those key figures, uh, including the president's son, who would later become president, want to quail off the ticket, uh, proved to me that he is definitely worthy of being one of the top worst picks. We put him at number two. But number one must be Thomas Eagleton. McGovern and his team only had hours to pick a nominee. It was a bruising convention, barely got, you know, McGovern makes a speech at 2 a.m. He's so busy fighting with the party at that convention, uh, fighting a little bit with his own side, too. Eagleton's liked by establishment Democrats. You know, McGovern makes the phone call to Eagleton's hotel, and before McGovern even says, I'd like you to be 
my uh, vice presidential running mate, Eagleton says, I'm willing to be your running mate. Jane McGovern overhears this, McGovern's wife, and thinks there's something wrong here. He's a little bit too eager. And nonetheless, they pick him, and McGovern's staff goes to him and asks, you know, is there anything about your history that we should know about? He says, absolutely not. Nothing to worry about. Well, someone steals records from Washington University Medical Center in St. Louis, and they find that in the 60s, Eagleton had been treated for depression, and at that time, the treatment prescribed was electrotherapy. At first, McGovern supports him, but this is a big buzz in the news. They can't, they can't talk about any other issue. They want to take it to Nixon on Vietnam. They can't talk about any other issue because it's, all the news is about Eagleton. McGovern says that he's a thousand percent behind Eagleton, but within three days he's accepting his resignation. Reading some of the books afterward, with some hindsight, you see that McGovern had consulted some experts. Uh, he thought that that good case could be made that there is you know nothing wrong with Eagleton. Eagleton, by the way, serves well into the into the 80s uh, serves the state of Missouri he's he's reelected after this there's no trouble with his career in uh, he has a has a, a long political life but um, there just wasn't the knowledge at that time and and uh, of something that was seen would be too difficult to run with Eagleton on the ticket really put McGovern in a tailspin the election became more about him than Nixon he had other problems of course he was very liberal for the electorate at that time. Some of that could have been resolved. They really wanted to make the entire campaign about Vietnam and take it to Nixon. Nixon wasn't all that popular. He had what today we would call unfavorables. And uh, Eagleton's story hurt in two ways. One, it was just badly managed and just sapped attention. And then also, when McGovern said he would be a thousand percent behind Eagleton, and then turned around and accepted his resignation, which is always known by most to be asked for that resignation. He was seen as disloyal, so even some of McGovern's own supporters didn't like it. McGovern was trying to create this new kind of politics. And if you read, for instance, Hunter Thompson's book, he was a big McGovern supporter, and he doesn't like this one bit. You know, you're trying to create this new kind of politics, and then you make a move that's just like the old politics, dumping your guy when he's a little down. So it was an entirely bad situation for McGovern, and so never could get away from it. This is not true of any of the other nine on the list. It also meant that he had to go out and seek another person to be the vice presidential running mate. Boy, did that look good. And then when a lot of people turned him down the second time, Boy, did that look good. Finally settled on Sergeant Shriver. He was okay, but the ticket went out to defeat and only won the state of Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time. 
from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. So that's kind of the disclaimer on this whole vice presidential selection process, you know. doesn't necessarily always go well. Two's not always better than one. And there were some close contenders that uh, didn't make the list because we could only have ten. In looking for a vice president, I think you can look at almost all of history. You can even look at the time before the 12th Amendment where parties weren't really picking a VP but sort of were agreeing on one. And I really think that there's four factors involved, really only four, or at least any other factor kind of fits into these four. One is to try to heal rifts in the party, what I call the glue. Then there's an attempt to pick up a region or a particular state, what I call swing. Then there's picking a nominee who has some experience, who might be good in the Senate, who might convince voters who are almost afraid of the presidential nominee, might have some good assets on their own, that that person is not experienced enough to be president. So pick somebody with a lot of experience. I call that heft. And then I think there's throwing the long ball. And maybe for a ticket that's not exciting enough, that voters aren't excited about, they're afraid of turnout, they're afraid of how the media is going to spin them all the time. They're afraid of the other campaign taking all the media away. And so you pick a candidate for buzz. Swing, glue, heft, buzz. So I think when you look at what they were trying to do, say, with William Hayden English or even Dan Quayle, there's a little bit of that swing factor. Oh, I want to win Indiana. When you've got two sides of the party that are in a rift, so Van Buren from New York, Richard Mentor Johnson from Kentucky. You want to bring the two sides together, kind of the, the, the Albany machine and the Jacksonian Democrats together, glue. You want heft? I think the most obvious one is Dick Cheney running with George W. Bush. You want uh, heft? You want experience? A little bit of that true with Biden. Biden had served a long time in the Senate, and so that looked good for Barack Obama. When you want buzz, you're going with Ferraro, let's say in 1984. You're going with Sarah Palin in 2008. I think these are attempts to create, you know, get something moving in your campaign, create some buzz. Swing, glue, heft, buzz. I think all of these are, there's a mixture here. You don't, you don't do, it's not always just one, but there's a mixture. But I'm going to make a prediction that in the coming month or so, you'll be able to fit both vice presidential candidates into those four categories. And it's going to be a little more of one and maybe another than all four. So now that we know what you're supposed to be doing with a vice presidential pick over history, I'll give you my top 10 best VP picks. And a lot of them, of course, became vice president, right? Because they were successful, but not all. Top 10, 
Uh, number 10, Thomas Hendricks, who in 1884 from Indiana and a supporter of Tammany Hall in New York. The top of the ticket at that time, the New York Democrats went with their reform governor, who was no friend of Tammany Hall and the political machine in New York, but was the governor of New York and got that way from fighting them. And Grover the Good was seen as the anti-machine candidate, anti-Tammany candidate. So you pick Thomas Hendricks for the glue that can kind of heal those divisions, plus a little swing because he's from Indiana. And he really did help heal divisions in the party. It's not likely that Grover Cleveland would have been elected without Tammany Hall feeling good enough about his election. Um, And Hendricks helped with that process, and they did win Indiana. Number nine, John Nance Gardner, uh, Speaker of the House. So he brought establishment credentials and from Texas. So he brought regional balance to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was running in 1932. It's easy to forget that FDR had a hard race in 1932 securing the nomination. And the convention went for several ballots. And there was this feeling about FDR that he'd say anything, do anything to get elected. There were words like chameleon used to describe him. Uh, they, they, they made fun of his Christian science smile and things like that. And so, um, he was also someone who was a moderate on the prohibition issue. So Garner brought, uh, brought balance to the ticket between wet and dry. Big issue at that time. Doesn't mean they got along, but the ticket was successful. Number eight, and one of three Texans on this list to give something away. Lloyd Benson. Now, Michael Dukakis did not win the election of 1988, but you can't ask for more service from a vice presidential candidate than Lloyd Benson, the senator from Texas. Of all the people running that year, George H.W. Bush, Michael Dukakis, Dan Quayle, Lloyd Benson. Lloyd Benson retained the highest favorability ratings in polls during that 1988 campaign, had his famous moment with Dan Quayle where he said, you, sir, are no Jack Kennedy big momentum for the Dukakis campaign. Uh, I do recall many people at the time saying that if Benson was running on the ticket, they would have voted Democrat. Number seven, Charles Dawes, the vice presidential candidate in 1924. Dawes had helped balance the budget. Dawes had uh, been the first uh, president's budget director in 1924. And so running with Cal Coolidge, who a lot of people didn't know because he had taken over for Warren Harding and was kind of an obscure figure uh, unless you lived in New England and knew him as the governor of Massachusetts. Charles Dawes helped add a lot of fiscal credibility. And this was a campaign in 1924 running on prosperity after a huge recession in the early 1920s. Dawes didn't turn out to be a good VP. And he and Coolidge did not get along, but for the 1924 ticket, he was the right choice. Number six, Walter Mondale. We don't remember this now because I think Jimmy Carter is seen in public as an ex-president, and most liberal people have a positive opinion of him. But in 1976, he was really running a little bit on the right. Uh, Yes, as a new Democrat, but a little bit on the right. And so Walter Mondale helped to provide the glue within the party and to help Carter with liberals. 
and with the establishment and to provide someone who would have a little experience having been in the Senate. I think you see that so many VP choices are senators, and there's a reason for that. First thing that the man and woman is going to have to do is become the president of the Senate. So you probably want to pick someone with a little experience, always good. But senators always are, are seen as, they're powerful figures in Washington, and they, they know people. And so it's a, not a terrible idea to pick a senator, particularly if you're trying to show heft. Walter Mondale added additional service. We talked about earlier about how bad Bob Dole was in terms of his performance. Well, Walter Mondale did wonderful in the first vice presidential debate ever, and in a very close election, 50.5%, he helped Carter. So he comes in at number six. You don't get much more of a bounce than what Clinton got uh, after picking Al Gore. Clinton was a candidate who had a lot of troubles during the primary in 1992, even after he had secured the the nomination. And then uh, late in the summer, uh, late in the spring, I should say, you, you faced the third party campaign of Ross Perot surging and Clinton had to make some news. His choice of Al Gore was a little unconventional because Clinton was from the South and Al Gore's from a neighboring state in Tennessee, so it was two southern moderate Democrats, if you will, and very well-respected choice. He made a good candidate. He made good speech. Um, he was somebody who had some bipartisan respects. He brought some credibility and some experience to the ticket. Couldn't win presidency himself, but comes in at number five. Number four, Albin Barkley, the man who originated the phrase Veep came from one of his grandchildren. 1948, Truman gets the nomination for the Democratic Party in, the, in a convention in Philadelphia. And at this point, it's mostly because most Democrats think there's no reason to challenge Truman because we can't win. Truman picks Albin Barkley to make the keynote speech in the convention. He makes a tremendous speech, which has the delegates enthralled. This is not the time to give up on the, on the things that FDR and we fought for on the New Deal programs and the like. He's an older man, but he makes speeches across the country, goes everywhere and speaks for the ticket. As vice president, he was a forceful VP, very well respected. It was a close election, so everything counts. We put Alvin Barkley at number four. Number three, Lyndon Baines Johnson. It would have been very difficult for John F. Kennedy, in my opinion, to win in 1960 without somebody like Lyndon Johnson running. And once the, the deal was made in Los Angeles to put LBJ on the ticket and he accepted, which is you know a story in and of itself, I think Kennedy won that race right there. Uh, won the state of Texas, would not have been a way that Kennedy, as a, running as a Democrat, would have won Texas without LBJ. It freed up Kennedy to take it to Nixon in all of the, the other states to have LBJ campaigning in the South. Another close election, and so I think in these close elections, you have to, you have to give it to them. Number two, Theodore Roosevelt, 1900. You see, you have to line this up appropriately because in 1896... William McKinley beats William Jennings Bryan. Bryan's trying a new type of politics where he goes out like a traveling preacher 
on the back of a train and speaks everywhere. He's creating excitement. The media loves Brian. And, of course, it's a fairly narrow loss in 1896, so he's running again in 1900. Now it's after the Spanish-American War, the annexation of the Philippines, the uh, Philippine insurrection, and, and, and very unpopular with a large group of Americans, and American soldiers are dying there. These are things that are not well remembered. But in 1900, as we approach the next election, it's a major issue. And Brian is ready. He's not just going to campaign now on the tariff. He's not just going to campaign now on silver money versus gold money. But he's got a new issue to sting the administration with, and that's imperialism. Not something liked by Americans. You're going to have Andrew Carnegie, you're going to have Mark Twain are going to be significant uh, people who are turning against uh, McKinley on this issue, reflecting a lot of opinion out there. Well, to counter Brian now in 1900, there's a new weapon, and that's the surprise choice for Vice President, the governor of New York, the hero of uh, the Battle of San Juan Hill, is Theodore Roosevelt. And Theodore Roosevelt, unlike... Garrett Hobart, and Hobart had died in office, but he had run previously with McKinley in 1896. Uh, Hobart did not leave his New Jersey home, just as McKinley did not leave his home in Ohio. Well, unlike Hobart, Theodore Roosevelt goes out and speaks. Wherever Bryan does, he speaks just as forcefully as Bryan. It's like they have a William Jennings Bryan on their ticket. And along with Roosevelt, McKinley wins that second election taking away the biggest asset that the Democrats had, which was a traveling speaking candidate running up against a president who was going to be in the White House most of the election. The number one best pick for vice presidential candidate, though, in my opinion, goes to Aaron Burr. Now, this is controversial. Didn't Aaron Burr shoot someone? Well, yes, yes, that came later. He's a very controversial figure uh, throughout his life. We're talking about vice presidential picks here and their merit in terms of the election. The other reason it's controversial is some will say, well, you didn't pick vice presidents then. This is before the 12th Amendment, right? So it wasn't like uh, there was a ticket with the two names on it. That's true, except in function, the same thing was going on because people within the parties, and there was very much a Republican, maybe say small p party, that very much decided on who would be on the top of the ticket and who would be on the bottom. And it happened in 1796, and it happened in 1800. And it was decided that Burr in 1796 and in 1800 would be the vice presidential candidate. The reason I put him on the top is without Burr, you don't have Jefferson. Without Burr, it's possible... You don't have a significant opposition party or two parties running against each other for a very long time in American history. Burr enables first Jefferson to come close to winning in 1796 and then to win the election outright in 1800. And this is because he secures the state of New York. And he does it in a very modern-like campaign, which he managed uh, in the city of New York, dividing it up into precincts and making sure that uh, his ticket won for the assembly, 
which in that time was in control of the electoral votes of the state of New York. So all the controversy that came later, and yes, there was even some hints that he was trying to become president himself. Still in all, you have to argue that the choice of Aaron Burr secured North and South, made the Republicans a real small P party, a real significant opposition that could actually win the White House, and a vice presidential selection didn't just win an election, but actually created a party. Well, you know, these top ten lists are always can be controversial, so take it for what it is. In a lot of cases, there were tough decisions to be made, and there's some people who could be on this list who aren't, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just name one, and that would be Arthur Sewell, who was probably a disaster for William Jennings Bryan because he ended up losing the support of the populists who nominated their own candidate for vice president. But I don't know. Reading Bryan's memoir, he says that the fact that there were two candidates helped him in the election. So, you know, for the moment, I'll take his word for it. I didn't put him in at least in the 10. He might have been number 11. Yeah, I think Richard Nixon was a decent uh, VP candidate for Eisenhower, but it, you know Eisenhower was a war hero. Was probably going to win that election. So do you put him on the list? He might be another eleven on the best side. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.